The Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, brought to you by Cornblow and Cornblow, the official law firm of The Process, The Colony Meadery, the official gluten-free booze made from honey of The Process, Seat Geek. Get 10 bucks off your first purchase by using the promo code RTRS and Kinetic Skateboarding. Get 9.1% off your first order with promo code Dave Silver. On the show today, we've been teasing a former Sixers employee, former Sixers general manager, former Nets general manager, Duke alumnus, and also a guy who never lost his job because he set up uh, shadow Twitter accounts to leak uh, <laughs> private information about his players and slag his best player. That's right. Never did that. Billy King will be on the pod today. This is exciting. It is. I think. Yeah. Um, before we get going, uh, two quick things. First, Clear the Shelters is today, and that's all over the place, every shelter, which means they're trying to create room for new animals in every shelter, and they waive all the adoption fees. So no adoption fees today. Our friends at Providence Animal Center are open until 530. No adoption fees. If you're not going to adopt a pet, uh, it's a good time to make a donation to the Providence Animal Center because they lose out on all these adoption fees. They had, I think, 122 adoptions on Clear the Shelters last year. So that's when you figure like 250, 300 bucks um, a, an adoption. That's a lot of money. It's 30 grand they miss out on. So make a donation or go adopt. And also tomorrow night at the Ship Bottom Brewery in Beach Haven in Long Beach Island, the Paul Green Rock Academy Band full Woodstock set to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. They were supposed to play the Woodstock 50 Festival. It got canceled um, because the thing to do, I guess, in this day and age is to set up a festival concert and then not be able to do it. At least nobody showed up at this one and, and were left on an island. But uh, Paul Green Rock Academy Band, Ship Bottom Brewery in Beach Haven in Long Beach Island, 815 on Sunday night. That is August 18th. So you can go see them play a full Woodstock set. Without any further ado, here is Amos and the Chef. Larry, sweetie, the man is here. We will write y'all. Welcome to the Rights of Ricky Sanchez podcast. I'm Spike Eskin, along with a guy who has also never created shadow Twitter accounts to uh, rip on his haters, at least as far as I know. That is Mike Levin. What up? I haven't done it yet because I use it for my own Twitter account. <laughs> um, well, I guess, I guess, I mean, but what percentage of people do you think who are who have significant online followings mm -hmm. or have shadow Twitter accounts to rip on people. Hmm. You, you don't have one, right? I do not. You don't have any burners whatsoever? Nope. Um, and I, like I, I, I say that with complete assurance. Like I, I definitely, definitely don't. I, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I fight with people on my own Twitter. What no, that would be crazy if you did. I would want yeah, to know. Yeah. Um, 
I would say like 10%. Like to actually, I think a bunch of people have burners that they just, if they're just want to lurk. But in, as far as people that want to like get in the mix and, and, and tweet at people, mm-hmm. I think like 10%. Um, yeah, that seems about fair. It seems like a lot of, seems like a, a lot of effort. Yeah, Even I mean, though it's not that it's, much effort. It's very bizarre. And again, yeah. we're, we're dipping our toe into Burnergate once again, but it's very bizarre <laughs> when you have actual power to be someone, to want to be someone that has none and that just argues with people online about stuff. Yeah. Like almost that the, the if, if your goal is to defend yourself, right, or to, uh, you know, to attack someone who agrees, does not agree with you, it almost seems less fulfilling to do it with an account that is not your own. Like, you don't even get the personal... Look, you're never going to convince anybody of anything on the internet, ever. You should you should know that. But it seems even less satisfying to do it with somebody who is not yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Willie Green Apple Podcast five-star review. We're at 2,470 on the way to 3,000. Brought to you by Kinetic Skateboarding today. Um, the good folks at Kinetic are the only place, the only, like, aside from on the internet, but the only real place where you can get the Al Horford Appreciator t-shirt for the same price that it is online, $21.99. You just don't have to pay any shipping. Go see Kinetic Skateboarding right there on 202 in Wilmington, Delaware, your friendly neighborhood uh, skateboard shop owned by fantastic people with a fantastic selection. They had these, um, they get these sneakers you can't get anywhere else. They had these Violent Femmes uh, Nikes this week that I think sold out real quickly. Mm. Um, but Kinetic is your place to do it. If you don't want to go in person, you can shop online at kineticskateboarding.com. Use promo code Dave Silver for 9.1% off your first order. Here's the review. This comes from JTV-3. I've been listening to the podcast for years, but I've never had an iPhone to leave a review because I'm an av- adamant Android supporter, and I've never tried on my Androids due to the name of the segment but i decided to bite the bullet and buy an iphone to leave a message for my little cousin wow so since you'll read everything i write here it goes from spike and mike to john's little cousin cousin cj enjoy your second year of college and make sure you hit the books just as hard as you did last year keep it up i'm proud of you five stars do Love we it. think he actually bought an iphone to leave the review no i don't yeah i don't think so either um so before we uh before we talk to billy the uh, live Ricky four with Mike Scott cashed out with Mike Scott, which is September 27th at the Franklin music hall, former electric factory got announced this week. The pre-sale is on Wednesday and the regular on sale is on Friday. If you want to be involved in the pre-sale and we'll get into this in a minute, the online reaction was as such that I think you might want to be involved in the pre-sale. It feels like it might sell quickly. Go to, uh, you have to sign up for our newsletter. We will send out the, uh, the password on both Tuesday and Wednesday. Mike so Scott, Mike to, Scott, by the way, uh, not someone that has burners. Definitely just fights with people on his own. Oh yeah, yeah. They, that's ha- has already obvious. has already started to antagonize uh, people against the live podcast on Twitter, <laughs> which I really appreciate. The first our first guest to start to get in, <laughs> just to get into it with people. One so, of us. Uh, the, yeah, like oh, real quick, writesrickysanchez.com/newsletter. That's where you sign up. So. You know, when when you do these things, when you when you get into the agreements with the players, like one of the things that you ask for is, hey, could you please at least briefly promote it online? And some of them you can get them to do it. Some of them you don't. Sometimes it, it depends on how online they actually are and how willing they are to do it. It's never quite as easy as it just was with Mike Scott. Like, 
I, I didn't even ask, and we posted it, and immediately he was retweeting it. He was putting it on his Instagram stories, and to your point, a day later, the minute somebody makes fun of it, he's not only attacking them back, but quote tweeting and shaming them. <laughs> it's a uh, it's a wild situation. I'm pretty excited to have. Yeah, it's gonna be good. Yeah. So we've been talking. We'll do the. Uh, we will, of course, have an interview with Mike. Uh, so another thing that we mentioned ever so briefly was tattooing someone on stage during the interview. I, I should have known that this would happen, but we already have, look, first of all, it's not even cleared yet. Like I don't even have the, the go ahead from the venue that we can do it. I think, I think we'll get it done. We already have, I would say no fewer than 20 people between Twitter and email that are volunteering to get tattooed on stage. Um, that's crazy. At least half of them said that they don't even care um, what it is. Like, we don't even have to tell them what it is, which is also crazy. Just be known, let it be known, if you are interested in getting tattooed, we will, we have not even discussed what the process of doing that is, of, like, deciding on who it'll be. It can't be more than one or two people. So, um, we'll have, do you have any ideas of how we figure that out? Do we do it randomly? As in... There's just going to be one person, or we think there's going to be like a line of people to get tattooed on stage? No, 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 no. I, I think we decide on it. I think we have to decide beforehand because we'll have to get them to sign a waiver and yeah, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I don't want to get sued so. for somebody fucking crazy getting a dumb tattoo on during an audience show. That'd be a fun way to go, though. That's, yeah. that's what ends the podcast. Uh, yeah. No, we can, yeah, we can think of something. Yeah. Could be, could I, be a random thing, could be. Uh, Who's dumb enough? I don't know. We'll figure it out. So anyway, sign up for the newsletter if you want the pre-sale. The link is at writestorickysanchez.com, just uh, right up front there. Um, and, uh, and regular on sales Friday if you don't want us emailing you. And I, I can understand that for sure. Yeah, so I was thinking as we, wait, as we wait for Billy, before we get to him, I was wondering, like, going into the season, there's always someone that we, on the Sixers, that we start to hate over the course of, of the season, someone that you're excited for ahead of time that you eventually just lose it over. And I wondered yep. who that was going to be this year. I think last year was pretty clearly Mike Muscala and Jonathan Simmons, although Simmons was maybe ironically uh, ironically loved by you and a few. Mm -hmm. um, of yes, like I did ironically love it. But like I wonder, is, like, is it going to be Raul Neto or Trey Burke or Kyle O'Quinn or whatever? Like who's Or one of the rookies. Who, like, it seems more at least on brand for me for it to be one of the veterans, like in the Luke Bamute, like that kind yeah. of, that kind of thing. What do you think? It's interesting with just to go back to Bamute because he went from, I think you eventually, everybody eventually came around on Bamute, right? Yeah. Didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Because he was a, he was exactly, you know, for all the years that the Sixers were criticized for not having like the vet or whatever, he was exactly that kind of guy. You know, the, and, uh, and also Jason Richardson and then Elton Brand. Like they had, they got him a bunch. Elton Brand, who, by the way, was signed to the Sixers for a giant contract and was, um, was amnestied and then signed again and now is the general manager what a of weird, a team what who a amnestied him. Yeah. So, all right. So a player who, uh, who you sort of like turn on almost. Yeah. Um, for me... So I don't think it's anybody in the starting lineup. 
Um, I'm going through the previous years. It was definitely Damian Wilkins back in 2012, 2013. Yes, for sure it was Wilkins. Arnett Moultrie, I fucking could not stand. Yeah, I mean, he was just a guy. I, that was Doug Collins' bitterness for trading up into the late first round, trading a first round pick for, into the late first to take him and never playing him and being, him being generally trash. <sighs> I, I don't think it'll be Kylo Quinn. I just don't think he'll play enough or be meaningful enough. Maybe the fouling, but like he'll play for six minutes or ten minutes. What difference does it make? I also think he's good. Yes, I I, I think we've been talking about signing him for years. Um, it's got to be Neto or or Trey Burke because either one of the two is going to play too much. That would be my guess. Yeah, and and their flaws will be exposed pretty pretty obviously. That would be my guess. Yeah, that's probably it. Jared Bayless is also obviously a guy that became that. Like, vet, like it can't be too good. It can't be someone that's too good. It's someone that is generally a bench player that disappointed you. And then just nothing they, they do is right, even when they do something right. It's, it hurts. And so I agree that it's one, of the, it's one of those point guards. But I hope not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's just all good vibes this year. But it's going to be somebody. Everything's perfect. Everybody's great. Yeah, maybe 82 and no. Who knows? Uh, I'm going to call him right now. All right. Well, I, I can tell you for sure who it won't be. It won't be Billy King uh, because he's not on the Sixers. We're going to call him right now. Uh, so Billy King, um, who I, I had no idea until we uh, until we chatted online that you are that you're back in town and like Philly is now kind of your actual home. Yeah, I, mean, I was thinking about it the other day. I've, I've been here now for uh, 22 years, so this is the longest place I've lived uh, in my life. So I'm a, I'm a Philadelphian, I would say. <laughs> yeah, you. Uh, I was I was looking through your Twitter, and you you seemed as excited that the Eagles won the Super Bowl as anybody I knew. Where were you when I, it looked like you were in a bar somewhere? Yeah, we were watching it downtown. I don't remember the name of the bar, but it's on uh, Walnut Street, and we had a little area with some friends and. And it was great because every time they scored a touchdown, they, the fight song went and people were cheering. And then right out to my wife and I and friends, we were walking right down uh, Walnut Street, you know, closing down the street. And uh, my wife, we had a hotel. We stayed the night down there. So it was a it was a fun time. It really was. And and I guess for me, the excitement is to, to know Howie Roseman and gotten to know him pretty well. And Jeffrey Lurie and, and been here and seen it. It's just, you know, it's fun to see people you know have success. Yet the, um, the, 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 what's really interesting to me for Lori or, or, and this happens with anybody, uh, who, who is, uh, in the public eye and they're, uh, any sort of front office person or athlete, how the narrative of who they are and what they were doing the whole time changes when you win, <laughs> right? Like, like, so Jeff Lurie, I think everybody had a, a reasonably positive, um, view of Jeff Lurie until the Super Bowl win. But after the, after they won, and this is the same for Doug Peterson or, or anybody involved, but Lurie, who has the longest tenure here of anybody involved in that went from like, you know, the Eagles, uh, were, were thought of at one point as being sort of smug and didn't care what the fans thought and, you know, let players go too early. And then they won. And Jeff Lurie is the best owner in the history of sports. So it is it's amazing how that can change the the past. Well, and, and that's what sports is. You know, the sports for the for fans and I consider myself a fan right now is is you you get involved, you embrace, you know, like with the Phillies, you know, four games ago, five games ago, you know, we all were moaning and groaning. They can't hit the ball. What is going on? 
And now Bryce hits the Grand Slam. They win four in a row. And now we're like, okay, then you go back to looking at the wild card race. Okay, where are we? Um, and that's what the greatest thing about sports because it's different than drama television or anything you do because it you ride the emotions up and down. And, and that's the greatest thing being in sports as a general manager. Uh, you understand that, that it's going to be the ebb and flow. You're going to understand when you make a trade in Brooklyn and everybody that day is saying how great it is and, you know, you get a pat on the back. And then when you don't win it, it then what a dumb trade that was. And But that's part of sports. And then, and then it does become the, like, when a championship does happen, it's the, like, oh, Ed Wade was actually really instrumental in getting those guys together. <laughs> and he was, and he was like, sort of hated when he was here. And then now, in retrospect, it was like, wow, we got to respect that guy. And even Ruben Amaro a little bit. It's like the same sort of thing where if guys are around long enough, then they, even in the moment, if they're hated, you get, you get enough time away from them. And it's like, oh, well, look at this move. Look at this move. Like, this actually helped us out way later. Yeah. Well, every GM, no matter what sport it is, has something to do with the winning or because if you're there long enough, you've drafted somebody that's probably going to have some success or you made a trade that down the road it'll come back. Um, and so, you know, I think, and I'm, I'm as guilty as it when I watch other sports that I'm, why don't they make a trade? They need to get this or do that. Um, but every one, every GM has done something in any sport and Ed Wade and Ruben Amaro, because at the time when they made those deals, you're not thinking that Noel's going to be who he is now. <laughs> you know, you're not thinking, King Ray, you're not thinking about those guys because you're just looking at the fact you're not winning at that moment. You know, you you brought up the uh, the Nets trade, which uh, which is <laughs> I figured get it out there right well, away. <laughs> yeah, I no, well, well, because of the okay, so I just wanted to like I'll I'll describe the 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 the, the timeline as I know it, and I, I'm curious as to what it feels like having be the person who made it. Uh, go through that timeline and if it seemed the same to you. So you made the trade, and the way that most people saw it was, oh, win-win, the Nets will be competitive for a while, so those picks won't be that good anyway, um, and this makes them an instant um, competitor. And there were some people criticizing it, but it was not, like it seemed like everybody understood the trade. Then, a couple years later, all of a sudden, it's thought of as like the seminal worst trade in sports history. How could they give up all these picks? How could they not know Paul Pierce and KG were done? Da 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 da. And now, maybe a few years after that, you look at what the picks actually resulted, uh, like what it resulted in for the Celtics, and it maybe doesn't. And and where the Nets are, uh, you know, like maybe it doesn't seem like it was as big a deal as we made it for a few years. So I guess my question is, is that how you sort of viewed it from your perspective? And what what did it feel like? And how frustrated were you to watch the narrative change based on what happened after the initial reaction? Well, you, you're right with the narrative. And that's, that's how it pretty much went down. But the, the one thing is, when we did it, we, were, we had a, it was going to be a two-year window, we felt. We had a two-year window because um, KG had two years Paul on his contract. We figured we could re-sign Paul, and it'd probably be a one-year with a player option, so that would have been a two-year deal. So so in two years, we were going to be a competitive team, maybe make a run for championship, and then we were going to be under the cap and have a chance to go after. At that point, the Ram was going to be a free agent, and there were other guys who were free agents. So the deal was we were to, to, to be as competitive as we can and then in, we'll have cap space and then go in the free agent market. And what turned is Russia invaded Ukraine. 
Okay. And once they invaded Ukraine, you know, the, the government, we put the sanction on them and, and, you know, and broke off the, you know, the economy changed on them and the money. And so at that point, he had a different philosophy. He didn't want to, at that point, like, let's pull back a little bit. I don't want to pay that kind of tax money. So that's where uh, things changed. Um, from that point of view, and I don't begrudge him because, that, as an owner, you have that that right to make that decision. But once you do, and knowing you've given up those picks, there's no turning back now. And so, what we did, we flipped uh, I think KG and got Theo Radliff. Uh, not Theo, me, um, Daddy Shung. I'm thinking another six or two. We had got Daddy <laughs> yeah. Shung from yeah. Minnesota, and we resigned him, and that ended up getting them Karis Levert. So we were able to flip that. He said, do that. Uh, Bojan, who we drafted, you know, brought in. You know, he was able to. So we started the, you know, moving pieces a little bit to start the process that they were able to continue. Uh, but, yeah, once you go down that path, like the Clippers right now, they went down that path. And those guys all have two years contracts, you know, Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. If for some reason an injury happens or in two years they are not there, they're going to be in the same boat with the picture gone. Yeah, it must be um, really interesting to you, too, being involved in... You have, in your time as GM, both with the Nets and the Sixers, you have a lot of, like, big trades for big stars, both trading away, like for Iverson, and trading for, uh, like for KG and Pierce, and also for Darren Williams. And, you know, the Darren Williams trade, I, I rem- I'll never forget that press conference because... He had like a look of shock on his face, and and I remember in the presser he wouldn't even he wasn't even like vocally committing to being there afterwards, and everyone thought it was so crazy. And look, he ended up trading what like favors and Enos Canner and like that that haul in retrospect does not look like much at all, but it seemed like a lot. It must be crazy for you to have made those trades when everyone when it seemed so shocking, and now there are so many trades just like that with uh, so little assurance that the players will stay. Yeah, and because and, and, I think what's happened now is teams have gotten in the mode of, of really trying to win. I say there's about eight teams in this league that are really trying to win and that are a bunch of them are just trying not to lose money. Um, and so you see where the Sixers for years were always in the mode of gathering assets, gathering assets, gathering assets, and then all of a sudden you, know, you have Ben and, and Joel who are superstars, and then it's like, okay, now let's go for Jimmy Butler, let's go for Tobias Harris. And so the mode has changed even this year. And so, because the, the one thing is injuries change your thought process. You can say we want to build slowly and go slowly, but if you have an injury to one of those young players, that window can close really quick. And so when you've got a chance, which I think the Sixers do this year, you've got to go for it because you may never get that chance again. Larry Brown told me that in 2001. You know, he wanted to trade for Matumbo at the beginning of the season when we were that year, 2001. We were best record in the East. We were going great. He was pestering all of in you know November and December, trade for Matumbo, and I kept saying we're winning. And when Theo got hurt right for the All Star break, Larry and I talked. We realized we may never have this chance again to get to the finals. So we've got to make the deal now. We can't sit there and say, well, hopefully Theo comes back, he's healthy, because that window may not be there. So that's why we did that deal at that point in time. We take a break from the podcast to talk about our sponsor, Mike. You love this one, SeatGeek. SeatGeek. SeatGeek makes buying tickets to anything, sporting events, concerts, whatever, way easier than it was before. 
The reason it's frustrating buying tickets to concerts or sporting events now is you feel like there are so many different websites to go to, right? There are, there are resellers. There's the original seller. You don't know whether a price is good or bad. That's why SeatGeek is important. They take all of those places, put them into one app, and tell you whether the deal you're getting is a good one or a bad one or an okay one. It's fast, it's easy, and you know you're getting a good deal. It's sort of like, you know, when I fly anywhere or go to a hotel, I go to Kayak first. Um, that's why you have to go to SeatGeek first. Tonight, let, me, let me ask you this. Do they, yes, do they let you know if, if like a, a 45-year-old man in uh, just a jersey who isn't very hygienic is sitting nearby? No. <laughs> That so would be if there's a suggestion bin. You would put that in for seat. I would, yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I'm likely not to run into that tonight. So tonight, I am actually going to see the Backstreet Boys, probably for the ninth time in my life, maybe tenth wow. time. They're at the Wells Fargo Center. Yep, uh, they put on a great show. They were way better than in sync. So tonight, if you wanted to go wow. see the Backstreet Boys, I am opening up the app right now. You could the cheapest ticket to get in. By the way, this is in the entire Wells Fargo Center. Is 152 bucks in section 222. That's only an okay deal, right? It's yellow. But as I scroll down, there's an amazing deal in section 215, row seven, gives you a way better view. That's $222. Here's another amazing deal on the floor, row two, $331. Not only do they rate it by color, but they rate it by like one to 10. So that's a 9.4. Look, it's easy and you only need one app and it gets even better. That's right. Because SeatGeek supports us they want to support you. If you go to the, download the app and use the promo code RTRS, they will give you $10 off your first purchase just because you're a rights to Ricky Sanchez listener. Again, download the SeatGeek app in the App Store or Google Play or whatever platform you use. Use the promo code RTRS and get 10 bucks off your first purchase. That includes Backstreet Boys tickets. Once again, that's promo code RTRS for $10 off your first purchase. With, uh, with smelly Celtics fan uh, uh, notification coming soon to the, uh, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> the, the SeatGeek app. Now back to the pod. So let me, before we go to the, the, the other stuff, I, I don't want to let the Prokhorov <coughs> thing go before I ask about it. So uh, Prokhorov just, it was just like there was a story that he's going to sell the, his remaining interest in the Nets and the Barkley Center. Um, you know, it seemed, uh, it was really high profile, his like ownership, you know, it was, um, you know, the, the, the big splash was like, wow, crazy Russian billionaire buys nets, like willing to spend hundreds of millions of dollars. What was it like, uh, working for him, I guess, compared to other owners and, um, and like the day to day, what, what was working for Prokhorov like? Well, the difference is in working for when I first got here, Pat was the president and part owner and I, Pat Croce. And that's why I dealt with Pat daily. Um, and then once Pat left after 2001, Ed Snyder I became very close. And so I would talk to Ed every day, whether he was in California or here. And so I would let him know what I'm thinking about the team, you know, maybe potential players that may be available. So when deals came about or something came about, if I called him and said, hey, get this guy, he knew right away. Oh, I knew that he was on board because we had already discussed it over time. And dealing with he was in Moscow and he didn't have a cell phone uh, didn't have email so you really could never you know you could get him but it would take you have to call his right hand Dmitry Razmov it would track him down and then would say yes he likes that deal 
Um, and so, but I never got the interaction. Like when I brought something to Ed, at times he would question, throw back, what about this? What about that? We'd go back and forth. So you, so you got the, the feeling of how he felt about making that decision. I never got that with Perkoff, even though with Dimitri, uh, who I was close with, Perkoff's right hand, you know, I, I never knew what Dimitri had to say to him to get him to say yes. That's... Or if he said no, I didn't know what it, you know, what did he say that didn't convince him to say yes. And that was the hardest part of not getting that feedback because you need that because you have a better understanding of what the principal person who's ultimately making the final decision is thinking as they make that decision. That's crazy. <laughs> that I, be, to be able to trust someone else to convey in a different language the intricacies of a deal and that seems just not a healthy way to, to run an organization for, for that guy. Well, I, I just think it was... It, it's how he did a lot of his business, and Dimitri, you know, I had a lot of respect for him, you know, how he did it, but it was just difficult because I had one one-on-one meeting with him uh, in my five and a half years, Wow! and that was the one he fired me. <laughs> oh, jeez. Oh, no. <laughs> well, uh, you know, go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't yeah, no, otherwise it was, you know, people around, but it was that, that was the one time where he and I, you know, I think we were together for about 45 minutes uh, where we discussed a lot of different things, you know, throughout the process, but uh, of him firing me. Uh, well, I guess it ended up being reassigned, uh, so to say. Um, but, yeah, that was the one meeting, one-on-one. Yeah, ownership, I think, is a lot of t- – more now than in the past, but, but ownership is the one thing that I think fans um, don't pay attention to when they talk about – the GMs get a lot of focus on them. Um, but really, when, when they talk about final say, because we've talked a lot about final say with the current Sixers front office, then when uh, Hinky was here and all that, but final say ultimately is the <laughs> owner. The owner yeah. has to like rubber stamp you know, everything. They have to say yes or no. And um, the, what the owner's vision is, is so important. How, so you, you, were, you dealt with two different kinds of owners from Pat and then Prokhorov, one who was super involved and then one who was not involved at all. What do you get the sense of around the league that it like is there a standard of how that works or is it is the the net really wide do you have to cast a wide net in how every ownership works with their front office yeah i mean it's very very wide and the one thing i do want to say with Porkoff though i had a lot of respect for him um we i mean i the times i had even within the group settings and meetings with him he was very bright and so i mean to this day i still send messages through people to get to him and let him know, and Dimitri as well. I have no ill feelings for them, but ownerships are def- definitely different in league. Some owners, and you have more in the NBA of owners who don't live in that city. Um, you know, when I first was got in the NBA, majority of owners lived in that city, and so they got a sense of the feel of the city. Um, you know where the fan base is swaying or how they're feeling uh, just by living here. Now, I think for the fact of with media and technology and the wealth that these owners have, you know, they can live in different cities. They jump on their jets and fly in and fly out. Um, and that's the difference. And I think then I think a lot of the owners are how their business are, is different than in the past where Ed Snyder was self-made. You know, he built it in, you know, different things. And a lot of owners now, they've acquired their wealth, whether it's hedge funds or private equities, where they've bought companies and sold companies and made money. And they, you know, in buying these companies, you know, they 
get rid of management or they you know, put somebody in place to run it and they know they're going to sell it at a certain time. And so when they come to pro sports, I think they don't understand that it's not just like a, you're not running a company. You're not buying a company and just throw somebody in charge and, and you go and leave and hopefully it runs well. These are human beings that have an emotional impact on a city, uh, on each other. And so I think from ownership, you've got to get a sense of them. Um, playing for Coach K at Duke, the best thing he had going for and he still has going for him, is he had a sense of each player's personality and mood so he could look at us and knew it, how we were how we were. He knew if I wasn't talkative in practice, something was wrong. He knew if Kevin Strickland, my roommate, was very talkative, okay, something wrong because he's normally not that way. And so he, he has a, a sense of the pulse. And I think a lot of owners don't understand that, that you know, you've got to have a, a, a feeling for these guys of their emotions and understanding because there's a lot of pressure on them within the city. If, you know, if you lose, if, you know, and their family pressures. And so it's just not, you're buying a company and building widgets and, you know, cut costs here and it'll go up and we'll make money and we can sell it. So pivoting to the Sixers a little bit, you were the GM of the Sixers from 1998 to 2007. Uh, which was also maybe the worst fashion period in history. What's it like to have so many pictures of yourself with a phone clip on your khakis on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the old. Well, that, I think it started when I first started. I think we had uh, two-way pagers. Motorola had this yeah. two-way pager, and that's how you communicate because you couldn't even text back then. There was no text, and then you went to the BlackBerry. And yeah, you're right. It's you look back on it and think, my God, you know. <laughs> I was wearing a BlackBerry on my belt, and then then the flip phone on my belt. Yeah, it. Um, and 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 you, you didn't even talk about the fashion of the big suits. Michael Jordan had the in, impact of the league, where everybody wore their clothes real big and baggy. The, the baggier, the better. Um, my my kids joke every now and then. I'll grab a suit from the old days, and I was like, oh, "What do you think about this?" They go, "No, put it back. Put it back. Can't let you at the house with that on." <laughs> <laughs> two-way pagers man i remember having just a regular pager you know oh yeah two-way motorola two-way pager yeah who would ever need to page me like why did i i had a pager in, in college you know i, I didn't I, I can't even imagine why anybody would need to page me but yeah well the two-way pager is basically it was texting with this little pager yeah so that's what it was uh, but yeah to just have a regular pager i'm not sure why you would have needed that spike especially <laughs> in college yeah i don't think yeah. so. i don't know either yeah you, 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 i'm sure your dad had like three or four of them all he, he still does and he still keeps <laughs> them on the belt clip uh, yeah. i have he still has cell phone on the belt clip i'll i'll never understand it um well in your six so you know i the you, you traded Allen Iverson, right? So when, you know, when, um, when the decision gets made, like, how does that, could you take us through how that happens? Do you make a decision and then start calling? Like, I always wonder how the information gets out from, from a team that this guy's available. We see it in the media, but is there like a, is there an internal system where you, where you call a couple of people and they disseminate the information? What is the process there? Well, this one was, um, Pretty public. Uh, I remember we were playing in Chicago, and uh, it was probably Allen's. It was Allen's last game, and I was sitting right by the bench and just watching it and watching the players' reaction and seeing everything in full. I knew at that point that it was time, and so we got back. I, you know, I called Ed Snyder um, and said, "Ed, it's, it's time." I said, "We've gone." I said, "You know, for this franchise, it's time. It's it's best for us and it's best for Allen." 
um, that, that, you know, we make this decision to, to move him. And, and he says, okay, let me talk to Brian Roberts, who owned uh, majority owner of the team at the time. And they talked and, and said, okay. But, and at that time, you know, Alan and that, and myself and Leon and Rose, his agent had met two weeks before that. And Alan was all in on the continue to try to build slowly add young guys. And I got a phone call, matter of fact, that from Leon that next day after the Chicago game said, Alan said he thinks it's time also to be traded. He wants to be traded. And I said, Leon, we just had that conversation. Now, once, you know, this ball gets rolling, there's no turning back. And so I go and talk to Alan on the court and he goes, I think it's time. I said, okay, I agree. And so the decision was going to be to try to say he was injured because he, he left the game in Chicago saying his back hurt. And then he wasn't going to go to Orlando. And then we would start the process. Well, um, we were playing at home. I'm not sure it was on Nash TV and, uh, Lisa Salters happened to run into Ed and Ed's having to say, yep, we're going to trade him on national TV. Oh boy. And she said, has he played his last game? She goes, yep, he sure has. And I'm sitting this week, game ready to start, and I get texts. Like, Ed just said you trade Allen. And I said, okay. <laughs> and so, so they got out that way. And then, and then now the next step was, yeah, everybody was calling with offers and making things. And the, the, the way I tried to do is try to find two teams or end up being three teams out west that really wanted them. And I, and I allowed Allen and Leon to give me a list of teams that he would like to play for. And so these teams started bidding, and I let them know, well, you know, you got to make a decision because, yeah, I'm getting this and that. So I got three of them bidding on each other. And the interesting thing about this is one of the teams needed to try to get a pick back from one of the other teams that was in the in the middle of trying to get Allen. And so I said, okay, they're never going to give them pick because they want Allen's. And so, um, and I remember getting a phone call from Denver saying. We got to go. We got a yes. Uh, so let's do it now before somebody we change our minds. And so that's how it ends up there. That's it, it's got to be tough to have an owner kind of undercut leverage that you'd have. Obviously, there are people still interested in it, but now it seems like everything is played so close to the vest. So to maintain as much leverage as you can. But if if Ed Snyder's going out there saying, "Yep, we're trading him," then you lose a lot of that negotiating power. Yeah, but once once I would have start calling teams, it got out because if I once I would call like say Denver, you know, then you make another call to Minnesota, you know, next thing you know they're going to tell they're going to go to their staff and somebody within one of those staffs going to tell somebody and next year, you know, especially nowadays, Woj is going to have it and it's going to be out there that you know they're potentially trading this guy and uh, generally when it happens quick when it happens where it doesn't get out it's usually done very quickly. Like with the Darren Wims, you know, I sort of touched base with Kevin O'Connor, Utah, and we were going back and forth about different things. And then once I knew we didn't get Carmelo, I called him, I presented a deal. He says, well, I can't add those pieces, but let me kick it around. I'll get back to you. And he didn't mention the wood trade Darren. He came back with a deal. I countered. We agreed. We said, I'll sleep on it for 24 hours. If it gets out, no deal. The next day, we woke up, we did the deal. We take a break from the pod to talk about our sponsor, the Colony Meadery. That's right, the Colony Meadery Mead, the oldest alcohol out there, the oldest alcohol on the books. It's made from honey. It doesn't have, it doesn't like taste like honey, but it's made from honey, which means 
Mike, this is good news for a lot of people. Celiac people, gluten-sensitive people. There's no gluten in the mead. None. No gluten in the mead. We have a lot of great news coming up. They have tons of flavors, the Colony Meadery. Just go to uh, colonymeadery.com. Just look at the cans. I'm a big can guy. I like uh, beverages in cans, and they have tons of different flavored canned meads. Uh, Grapefruit League, amazing. Mini Mead, amazing. Uh, Tea Tax, amazing. Go to colonymeadery.com. But good news, and we, we, we can't reveal it yet, but Lick Face Volume 2 is on the way. I, I, don't, I don't know if we should give them a hint as to the flavor. We'll wait. We'll wait. But Colony Meadery, uh, Lickface Volume 2 is on the way. Lickface Volume 1 obviously has Vlade on the can, is a uh, pumpkin spice mead. I think that's still available on the site. Uh, as well, the other thing we want you to do, a new, new thing for the Colony Meadery. We're going to start a section on the website for pictures of you with your mead, and we are calling it Have a Mead Coward. So what we want you to do is take a picture with your Colony Mead, Post it on Twitter, Instagram, whatever. Tag us, tag Colony Meadery, and put Have a Mead Coward, and we'll put you into the, uh, into the gallery there. Um, and if you don't want to buy it online, it's available all different places in Eastern PA. Uh, it's at Wegmans, every Wegmans in Eastern PA, Bella Vista, Beer Love, Whip Tavern, Bottle Room, Iron Abbey, Urban Village Company, Johnny Brenda's, DeBruno Brothers. Pick up some cheese and mead, which is a longstanding tradition, standard tap. Um, or as I said, go online and order colonymeadery.com. Use code Ricky, R-I-C-K-Y for $5 off. Must be 21 to drink. Please get buzzed responsibly. Again, that is the Colony Meadery. Uh, now back to the pod. Interesting. The, it, you know, you dealt with, I mean, there was obviously a, not a lot of media there and you, uh, you were a general manager in both Philadelphia and New York. So there's, <laughs> you dealt with a lot of media, but it does seem like that whole thing, the thing around trades and around signings and the media manipulation from agents and from uh, teams and shoe companies is way bigger. How hard, uh, like how much harder is it to navigate that whole thing now, do you think, compared to, say, 20 years ago? It's, it's, very, it's, it's almost impossible because there's just so many wants. The only way you try to keep it within is you got to keep your inner circle small that you're talking with. Um, and there's certain teams you know once you talk to them it's going to get out um, and then there's so you try not to talk to that team unless you know you want to do a deal with them because if you mention anything it's going to get out then there's certain teams you can talk to and it's not going to go anywhere but you try to keep the circle tight you don't you don't want to include your head coach too soon because they're going to include their assistant coaches who's going to include and 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 not doing it in a bad way, but they're all trying to gather research and talk to people about, tell me about this guy, tell me about this guy. And once you start doing that, it goes pretty quickly in this league and then it's out. The, how much of, oh, sorry. Um, just one quick follow-up. How much of what we read right now, of what we hear from, let's say, mostly um, sources that we consider to be legitimate, you know, the Woges of the world, the Steins of the world. I'm not saying them in particular, but that level of person. How much of what we read is from teams, and how much of what we read is from agents? Um, a, a lot of it is, is it's from, if a player's trying to get traded, it's from the agent. Um, and the player may not ask to be traded, but he may be trying to, you know, privately try to get traded, and so that that has come from from them. If it's if a team is trying to move a guy and you know they'll 
start put other teams will start putting stuff out there to try to mess up the trade. Like if I know I'm Team A and Team B says, "Well, you don't have anything to make this deal you know, work," then I'm going to put out everything I can to try to blow up any deal that's going on, so that he'll have to come back to me. And so that, that's how a lot of stuff gets out that it's false because somebody's trying to just blow up the deal that's currently going on or get in the middle of it, so that he has to come back to you. How do you know? When a guy, I know you said with Iverson, it became evident that it was time. And that was obviously a very specific circumstance. But how do you know the moment when a guy is, it's the right time to move on in the sense of like MCW was traded at the height of his value. Uh, Julia Okafor was not traded at the height of his value. Uh, how do you know when you're holding on too long or when you're do, going too early? Is it almost like blackjack in a way, like leaving, deciding to stay at the table? Yeah, well, like with Allen, I just knew where we were in his career and where we were with the other players in Corver and Iguodala and Thaddeus Young, they were at the beginning and Allen was at a point where he was really trying to win a championship. So you knew we weren't, you know, we weren't going to ha- that going to happen probably in the next three years, two or three years. So that's when you say, okay, let's move on from him. Um, I always say, I think you'll know if a guy by the second year, if they're going to be successful in the league, if they can be a rotational player, whether it's top eight, by their second year. And and they may not even be playing a lot, but you can just tell from practice and how they conduct themselves and their work ethic. Um, and I say if you, if, if after year two, you, you don't know, or if you don't move them, if you don't, if you don't, if you think the guy can't play and after year two, you don't move him, everybody else in the league is going to know and his value is going to go down. And I think the problem with happened to Joe Okafor is that he was drafted here and Sam is going to hang on to hang on to him. And then once Brian came in, it was like, okay, I got this name. I got to get him. And the biggest thing, I think, when players are drafted, after they're drafted, their draft order has to, you got to get rid of that and just go based on how they played. Yeah. You know, you can't try to trade. Because just because a guy was drafted number two or three, and now he's been in like two years, say, okay, I got to get value because that's where he was drafted. At. Well, no, there's a track record now. And so you've got to get what you think is the best value at the time for your franchise, you may have to cut bait and say, okay, let's move on. But if you're going to keep trying to hold out and get value for the guy just because you drafted him two, three, four, you know, you're going to lose out at the end of the day and you're going to have a depreciating asset. Is is there somebody you feel that is in the league now that is best at that, you know, sort of capitalizing at the right time? Who who would you say are the, the best few GMs in the league? Well, I mean, I, I've always liked Sam Presti. Um, I, I think Sam does a good job of understanding the marketplace, understanding where things are going to go. Um, and and thus far, what the Clippers have been able to do um, in a short amount of time, moving Blake Griffin and Chris Paul and you know the players that they moved to, to get to where they are, DeAndre Jordan, um, it's been pretty remarkable. Um, but one guy I think that people are quietly sleeping in is Atlanta. I think they're doing a good job of just quietly adding pieces, young pieces, and building slowly and not and not trying to lose, and which I think is when you're trying to, you know, everybody wants to play the lottery game, but I still think you got to try to win because I think as much as winning is habitual, so is losing. If guys get used to losing, they're going to continue to get used to losing. You want guys to try to win. And you can always do things into the game to make sure you lose a game or two, but you, you don't want to just put players out there that aren't building towards the culture.
who you want going forward. Um, and I have to give a lot of props to Sean Marks. I think Sean has done a great job in Brooklyn of really taking pieces in, developing them, and Kenny's done a great job of developing them. Um, but I think he's probably ahead of the curve for a lot of guys right now. Now the big test is, is once you're getting to the point where they are now, the biggest challenge, and the Sixers are in that mode as well, is now getting over the hump. Is how do you get now over the hump to get to that finals? Who are you? Does, who are you rooting for in Sixers Nets first round this year? This is the this is the most important question <laughs> oh, of the podcast. There's, there's no doubt. I'm Philadelphia all the way. There all we right. go. There we go. Uh, like it, it, you mentioned, Sean Marks, who. You know, we so this podcast started pretty much uh, a week after Sam Hinkie traded Drew Holiday, and we, uh, you know, our our whole community around this was was bound around that rebuilding project. And then, you know, Sean Marks over the last few years has done has done it similar and different in that he didn't really have the assets to make it work, so he had to take different chances. Um, you mentioned pivoting to winning. What advantage is it? You know, Marks did not have a lot to work with, and Hinky was was sort of allowed to lose. How much of an advantage is it when, you know, Sean Marks, no one expected them to win, so he could take chances on things that didn't work out. You know, like everyone will remember the great Sean Marks signings, but the Alan Crabs of the yeah. world and the you know the um, the uh, the offer sheets that didn't get signed, uh, you know, won't get remembered. How much easier is it when you have? I guess that leeway to lose. Well, and, and everybody, when you're in that position, of, and I mentioned Atlanta, when you're you're at the bottom and you're losing, people don't look, they don't focus. You, you take chances. You can say, "Well, I'll try this because hey, what do we have to lose? If Crabby signs it, Valen Crab signs it, no big deal, you know." Um, so you can do those things because you, nobody's expecting you to to, to win. Um, but I do think you gotta you gotta try to put yourself in these where guys are trying to win games though and playing hard and winning games and doing things that you you want to do when you are trying to uh, win a championship when you do have the right pieces and I, and I'll always bring up Duke but I go back to Coach K and, it, and there's a great uh, plug at ACC Network on next week it's the class that saved Coach K the story and Johnny Dawkins Mark Allery Jay Billis David Anderson and Weldon Williams, those guys came in and they got drilled their freshman year. They lost by 40 in the ACC championship at the UVA in the first game. Coach K continued to play man-to-man. They pressured. And everybody said, play zone. He goes, nope, because when we start winning, we're going to have to play man-to-man. And three years later, that same group is, you know, they were in the, like four years later, they were in the ACC NCAA championship. But he stuck to how he wanted to play. And and built the foundation, and I do think that's what Sean them did, and Kenny did in, in Brooklyn. They wanted to shoot a lot of threes. They wanted to spread the floor, space it out, and uh, and they tried to win games. And you know, and and so it was a lot easier when they had the pieces and got Daniel Russell playing well to win. I think when Sam had it going here, I just don't know if a lot of the guys he had were NBA players. And that's the hard part is you can take chances, but you can't have so many guys on the floor that just aren't NBA players because you know they're not going to, they don't have the ability to build on the foundation that you want to build on. Even if it is, so the, the way we always talked about it was if you, you know, with second round picks and undrafted free agents, right? It's a very low success rate. Um, so if you take 20 chances, you're going to get two. And if you take five chances, you might not get any. 
you don't think that, um, you know, taking those couple of years and just trying as many as you can to find those foundational pieces is, is the right way? Well, I, I just don't think you can take so many of them right. uh, and, and bring guys in and out because it makes it hard to build some kind of continuity right. on the style of how you want to play. That's, that's, that's my thing. I, I think you do want to take chances on there, but you can have five guys or six guys. You say, okay, these guys, we want to have here at least two or three years and build with them because, you know, the Okafors, the, the MCW, the guys we know are NBA players, and we try to develop them. And then on the, the rest of the guys, we can take chances and bring in guys in. And, but you, and I think you, one thing is you have to have a couple veteran guys that teaches these young guys what it's like to be a pro how to dress, how to conduct themselves in a hotel on the road. Because if they all are being taught by the same young guys that have no NBA experience, then they're going to learn these. this is what the NBA is like. And as they get older, they, you know, you're know, you not going to have somebody to say, this is how we don't do things this way. Um, like when we first got here to Philadelphia, Larry and I, we, we brought in, um, um, I'm going to let the guy in and go, I'll go back to answer the question. All right. Um, but Larry and I, we brought in Rick Mahorn and Terry Cummings just for that factor to teach Alan those guys what it's like to be a pro. And then after year two, we said, okay, it's time for them to go because now it's time for Eric Snow and George, those guys to take over because they've learned the lessons of being a pro. Yeah, I think that the difference in Atlanta and the difference of, er- of the early Hinky tenure was that Atlanta right now has those guys that they want to build around, right? Trey Young. John Collins, now Kevin Herter, uh, and a couple of guys that drafted this year, and that's and that's the foundational piece. Do you have like do you take pride in the in the guys that you drafted that are still in the league? Like when you see them play, specifically like Igadala, Corver, and Lou Williams, like do you and Thad, do you do you take pride in seeing them be like, Yeah, that's that's my fucking guy? <laughs> no, no, I do. I, I really I do in the sense um, one, I stayed in contact with all of them. Um, you know, I was able to attend Andre's wedding and, uh, Kyle, I talk to every now and then when he gets traded or, you know, reach out, um, Thaddeus, who I had in Brooklyn, uh, I just talked to him when he got, when he signed in Chicago. Um, even Bojan Bogdanovic, who is now in playing with, who was playing with Thaddeus in Indiana. Now he went to Utah. I texted him and said, Quinn Snyder was one of my teammates at college. So you're in great hands there. So. Uh, I do, in a sense, but I don't look at it as solely it was me. Uh, I was fortunate to have a great staff, and Tony DeLeo when I was in Philly, and Courtney Whitty, and Frank Zanin, um, and Scouts, um, and in Brooklyn, the same thing. Um, but the one area I always took pride in and I enjoyed the most was the draft, uh, because I, I always told our guys in the draft room is, let's not focus on what a guy can't do. Let's look at what he can do. What NBA skill does he have that we can improve and develop around you you mentioned Igodala. well first of all actually you mentioned skill what can we have would you have ever believed that lou williams would have become what he became i mean it it first of all it's amazing he's been in the league so long um you know because he came in so young but would you have ever imagined this out of this specific thing out of him well coming out of high school he was a scoring machine he was a guy that scored it and I remember Tony and those guys telling me that, that he could score, he's a score machine. And I would not have imagined that he was still be playing this long and being 
being the successful as he as he is, uh, the the one thing we did when we drafted him because he was our first and only high school player we drafted, and we brought him in and said, "Look," and met with him, his mom, and his agent, and said, "This is the deal. Like you're going to be here Monday through Friday, starting now, and you're going to lift in the morning, have lunch, you're going to shoot, and then you're going to play in the afternoon five on five. You're going to do that Monday through Friday. You get the weekends off. We'll go to summer league. You'll get two weeks off, and then you come back and do the same thing." And the first couple of days, he struggled to get through the whole day because it was, it was so intense. The next year, after his rookie year, he went to the coach and said, what's my schedule? What's my plan for this year? And it goes back to what I was saying before is developing habits so the young guys know this is what the NBA is expected. And what, that's what I wanted when he came in. I wanted him to understand, come to high school, this is not just the NBA you get to play basketball. This is a job, and you got to work at it. Um, so uh, he, he put his time in, and so a lot of credit has to go to Lou. You, you mentioned Iguodala, uh, or Mike mentioned Iguodala. What what an interesting um, start to his career, and then what he's become. How much? It, I I don't know how to ask this question. His his um, his trajectory in Philadelphia. Um, first of all, like even having the same initials as Allen Iverson, but being uh, cast as this is our guy, this is our lead scorer. Um, and I think subsequently, because he probably wasn't up to that, having not a great relationship with fans and not a great like rep here, you know, how could you imagine his career going differently if the setup was different? Um, did you think he could be who he, um, who like it was look portrayed as to what you wanted him to be, you know, lead scorer, main guy. Um, what did you think of Andre then? And then looking at his career now, the different ways that it could have gone. Well, I never thought of, he was going to be a guy that's going to be a 20, 25 point score. I thought he'd be a guy that probably could average 16, 17, eight or nine assists and eight or nine rebounds. Um, but like you said, the problem here is when he came in and, he was rookie of the year. I mean, rookie at the uh, MVP of the rookie game, and so the expectation was he was. Everybody thought he was going to be the next franchise guy to replace Allen Iverson. I looked at him as as a piece that would do a lot of things and make a lot of guys better. Um, and when we traded Allen, the one thing we did is you know we could have traded Andre Miller and tried to tank more and see if we can get a better pick. But as I told that son, I said Andre Miller is a true point guard. He will let us know if these other guys are NBA players. We'll know if Andre, if Kyle, if Will, if these guys are really, truly NBA players because he'll put them in position to be successful. And that's why we didn't, because we needed to find out how good they really were. I, I can't believe, would you have ever guessed, like, do you think Andre Iguodala is a Hall of Famer? Yeah, I think he will be. And just for the fact that the MVP in the finals, winning the championship for the Golden State Warriors, um, success, I think he probably will be just. And look, the great thing about the NBA, the pro and next NBA, the, the basketball fame is a lot different than baseball. Baseball, there's no way I would say that because it's impossible to get in there last year. The numbers are off the charts. Um, but I think for what he's done in, in the NBA, uh, yeah, I, th- I think he will be. Do you do you least lose sleep over this? Is by the way, this is going to be my my portion of the podcast when we get into the the very minute stuff as everybody turns off the podcast. Do you lo- <laughs> do you lose sleep over guys who didn't make it? 
and I have a list of guys that I wonder about. But like, do you, guys who you were like, oh, I really believed in that guy, even if he wasn't a first round pick, even if he was a second rounder, you're just like, I think this guy has it. Do you still once in a while be like, ah, shit? Yeah, I mean, I I do, and I you think back and say, wow, if we didn't take that guy, we probably could have drafted that guy. Yeah, you do, and you, and you, you know, in my mind, I go back and think, okay, what were we thinking? Why, what was the thought process that led us to him? Uh, and I can replay it in my mind sometimes in the draft room, and and uh, I'll know right away that that was a mistake. We shouldn't have, you know, shouldn't ever did it that way, or should never went because of that. Yes, um, and there are guys that I thought for sure were going to be there were there were can't misses at least be consistent rotational players in the league and, and, and didn't work out. And, and a lot of things go into it. Um, the biggest challenge is you don't know how guys are going to react once they get paid. Once they start earning money, you don't know how they're going to react as, as human beings. Mm-hmm. Like, I really believed in Herbert Hill and Derek Byers. Those are guys that I, I was certain about, at least becoming <laughs> rotational players. What, what do you think? How often do you think about Herbert Hill and Derek Byers? <laughs> well, I, I didn't until you brought him up, but uh, <laughs> but I think back to Derek Byers. You know, with his career, what he had done. It, you know, I thought for sure that he would be a rotational player, and I thought Herbert Hill had the, the skill set and the mindset to do it as well. Um, so you're right; those are two guys I thought. You know, they fit what we were and how we drafted guys, and you know, they're yeah, the four-year players in college and ready to come in and. Um, and it just something about him that just didn't work. I don't know why, but yeah, those I didn't think about him until he brought him up. And once he did, I thought there definitely were two guys that would be rotational players in the NBA. Good, I'm glad. Honestly, I'm glad Billy, we're on the same I, page. Uh, yeah, I, I still believe in Rodney Carney. If we're if we're being honest, <laughs> like he every time I saw him play, and now looking at the NBA now, I'm looking at him. I'm like, that's a three and D guy. Come on, <laughs> he's got it. Well, you know, and Rodney had all the tools, had the ability, the shot. I mean, you're at three and D, and it just I don't know if Rodney had the the, the desire to be great, right? And, and I think he wanted to be good, but I think with he had the desire, he wanted to, he had to want to be great. He, he may not have lived to be lived up to being great, but he had to have this like Kyle Corbett wanted to be great, which I think allowed him to overcome a lot of his deficiencies to be a, a good NBA player. Um, and that's where I think Rodney had that desire to be great. I think he wanted to be good, and when you be good, you don't put as much effort into it, much work, because you know, be good is just you make a roster. To be great, you got to work at it. Tim Thomas uh, always struck me as it, that that was like the the missing piece there, at yeah. least from afar. Yeah, um, I, I think Tim is exactly in that same boat. Had all the skill set, greatest guy in the world, but I don't think he had the desire to be great, but wanted to be good. We take a break from the Race of Ricky Sanchez podcast to talk about our incredible sponsor, the official law firm of the process, Cornblow and Cornblow, Mike. So we're bringing something back for Cornblow. We did this a while ago. It was very popular. We're going to bring back Cornblow legal tips. Huge. Yeah, very big. So, you know, Cornblow and Cornblow is the premier boutique personal injury law firm in the Delaware Valley. Uh, and, and you, you know, like you call Cornblow, you get a Cornblow. We talk about that all the time. It's not just a referral service, but he's there to help you, to prepare you in case something bad happens. So the tip we're going to talk today about that, that I actually ran into is, and, and you'll notice this when you get your auto insurance, there's a section for uninsured and underinsured motorist coverage. This is really, really important. 
Because if you get into an accident with somebody who does not have insurance or has not enough insurance, then that's where that coverage comes in. So let's say you get into an accident with somebody who doesn't have insurance and, uh, and they were in the wrong. And let's say like they're not, they don't have any money. There's no way, there's no recourse for you, right? That's what underinsured motorist coverage is. So most people, when they skimp on something, skimp on that. So they'll see that they only have $15,000 of uninsured motorist coverage. That means that if the driver who hits you only has $15,000 of liability insurance, you can only get $15,000. That's why you need underinsured uh, motorist coverage and uninsured motorist coverage. It is worth the investment. Um, like, like I said, I got into a car accident years ago. I had a lot of underinsured motorist coverage. The person who hit me had no insurance. And, uh, and that really is uh, really important. So, and those are the kind of things that Kornblau will tell you. If you get in any sort of accident, you're in an accident, you, uh, you know, slip and fall at work, slip and fall, in accident at work, a car accident, anything like that. Medical malpractice is what they specialize in. Call Kornblau, and he will lead you down the right path. I'll tell you if you have a case, and then if you do have a case, he's the one to get you the best results. The Kornblau firm has been there for 40 years, started by his parents. It's him and his mom running it now with an assortment of other Kornblaus. Uh, if you think you might have a case, give him a call or shoot him an email. It doesn't cost you anything, nothing, until he gets your results. 215-576-7200. Ask for Adam or just go to lawyersfortheprocess.com. Kornblau and Kornblau, the official law firm of The Process, now back to the pod. Uh, so so the, the whole thing happens with Brian Colangelo here, and I say the whole thing happens in that we've talked about it for hours and hours and hours. I'm whittling it down to four seconds. But, um, and then they, uh, you know, there's, there's no GM for a little while, and then they hire Elton who everyone, you know, loves as a guy, um, r respects, but had basically a half season of G League general managing as his front office experience. Um, what did you think of that hire? And what do you think of someone getting that job, um, their ability to handle it with so little actual NBA front office experience? Well, the, the one thing is I think they, they put some people around them that had experience uh, in that work. And uh, speaking of, you know, when I got the job in Philly, I'd been an assistant coach uh, for Larry Brown. Fortunately, I'd been in a lot of trade discussions uh, in Indiana with Donnie Walsh and Larry Brown because Donnie brought the whole staff in. So I, I learned a lot just sitting and talking. But the key is whatever you, anybody's put in that position, whether you have experience or what, it's about putting a, a support system around your staff, um, and and that's what we did in Philly. I had Kevin O'Connor and a BMGM of Utah, Tony DeLeo, Larry Brown. So I had a great support system to help me, um, and I think that's what Elton has. I think Elton relies on them. The biggest thing is, as a general manager, to me is more so than the trades and the draft. All that. It's really managing, and I think that's from the day-to-day -day of managing the players and the coaches and the personalities. Um, because at any point in time, the season can go awry if you're not managing the personalities and, and try to put out fires. I always tell people, I said, my job as a GM was to be a fireman. I didn't know how big the fire was going to be. There was going to be a fire every day. It's just how big it was going to be, and I had to put it out. Your thoughts on Elton Brand being heightest and only signing huge men as a big guy to play for the Sixers? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think he did. I mean, Holford was a great signing. Um, I, I think, you know, his mindset and his ability to understand time and score, I think, will be 
key for them. Um, you know, he takes big threes when you need them, uh, rebounds. So I think that's a great signing. Um, what are the big guys that he signed? Well, Kylo Quinn, and then even Josh Richardson. Not they didn't have a point oh. guard for a while. It was it's it's a big it's a big it's a bunch of big dudes on that team. A lot of Elton Brand sized men on that team. <laughs> yeah, I mean even even Ben Simmons is an Elton Brand sized man. Like when you think about it, they have Embiid and Horford, and then they went and got Kylo Quinn anyway. It's just a a lot. You know, we had Greg Monroe and Boban Marjanovic and Joel Embiid all on this all on the team last year. Well, so, you you know what though, when you get in the playoffs, like. You know, you you want to make sure you have enough depth. And unfortunately, this year they, they you know they did have a lot of big guys because when Boban went down and then Elton, I mean, I, I mean, um, uh, Joel was sick. You know, you needed those guys. So I think you always want to make sure you have enough big guys for the playoffs. Regular season, I don't think you need as much, but during the playoffs, you need, you need as many big guys because you don't want to lose the game just because you don't have an extra big guy that you can put out there to, uh, for foul trouble or injury or sickness. Turning back uh, the clock, turning back the clock once more because I, I still got more past questions. It felt like my childhood was spent uh, trading and then reacquiring Brian Skinner. Just seems like <laughs> over and over again. Uh, what what was it like? And Kevin Ollie, I think the same thing. Like you, it seemed like there were a bunch of guys that the Sixers during your time like had to trade for whatever reason and then brought back. Was it just because of a a relationship thing of like a we know these guys are solid type deal? A lot of times you got to put a guy in to make the deal work for the numbers, and you may not want to trade him, but you put him in for the deal. I mean, and the worst one we ever was uh, Bruce Bowen. Yeah, you know we we had to put him in to make that deal work with uh, I guess it was Tony Kuko, and Chicago was agreeing. They were, I knew they were going to waive him. We resign him, and then he got claimed. I think claimed off of waivers by I think Miami, um, and you know then he went on to San Antonio and became the Bruce Bowen shooting threes. But a lot of times it's putting guys in deals because to make the numbers work, you need another $100,000 to make it work. And then you try to bring them back because when you want guys like that, you know their character. And, you know, they understand they may not play a lot of minutes. So Kevin Ollie was great for that. Brian Skinner, they were good. Because you know, sometimes you bring in a guy like that on a minimum contract, and they can be very disruptive. And you don't want those guys being disruptive. Mm-hmm. There, this is this is another. These are two questions of, that are that have been deeply important to me since I was like 14 years old. So this is this is very <laughs> get excited about this. Uh, I I so believed in the Jamal Mashburn trade working out. Was there any chance of him ever getting healthy and playing for the Sixers, or was it always was it always uh, sort of written off? Yeah, I mean, we, I, I like Jamal, and I think he tried, but I, I just think that health-wise, he was at, and also he was a point mentally where he was in the business and moving in a different direction in his career at that point. Uh, he had owned car dealerships and things like that, but injury-wise, and I think his mindset was he was beyond. Okay, breaking my heart. And then the second thing is, and this is even even more obscure, at I believe it was in two thousand seven. The Sixers drafted and then traded Carrillo Fasenko to the Jazz for future considerations. I was waiting for those future considerations for a decade. What were those considerations, Billy? I think it was probably a protected second-round pick, probably somewhere down the road that we, you know that they it was protected enough that they weren't getting. We weren't getting it, basically. Yeah. I figured. I figured it was like this a cat. Happens. This is what you get. You get like a, this is what happens when you let Mike take a part of the podcast. <laughs> this, 
<laughs> no, but it's it's interesting. It, it makes me think. I mean, to go back, oh, okay, and that's you know, it's just interesting. You know, brought up Derek Byers and Herbert Hill. You know, this has been great. This is fun. <laughs> well, I have one last question for me, and then Spike can finish up. Uh, your last trade as Sixers GM was September tenth, two thousand seven. You traded Stephen Hunter, who I did believe in, also, and Bobby Jones, who I also believed in, to the Nuggets for Reggie Evans. And the rights to a 20-year-old Puerto Rican big man named Ricky Sanchez. Did you know that that is now the name of this podcast is the rights to Ricky yeah, Sanchez yeah. because you yes, acquired I him do. then? I do. <laughs> we we actually so we've never spoken to Ricky Sanchez. We know that he's a, aware of it, but we did find out uh, a couple of days ago that he was trying to obtain one of our T-shirts from one of our listeners. Um, and then, and then the conversation fell off. Did, did you ever? You never talked to Ricky Sanchez, did you? I did. I talked uh, to Ricky. I talked to his dad. Uh, wow. I talked about possibly coming to summer league, and, and that was one where uh, I remember doing the deal with Denver, and Denver just said, "Look, you got to take the rights to this guy." I said, "I don't want him," and they go, "No, you got to, you know, trust me. We'll give you the rights to him. Just, you know, we're throwing it in." And I said, "Okay." And immediately after, I got a call from his agent. Said, what if, I, mean, I can't believe Denver did that. They were supposed to keep him. They were going to give him a deal. And I said, oh, okay. I said, look, they just do him in. I said, oh, I'll take him. So that's how the Ricky Sanchez ended up in that. And hence, you know, without him, there would be no Ricky Sanchez podcast. That's right. <laughs> well, his existence didn't create the podcast. No, I don't know. I, yeah. I, I got to well, give it to him. It's all Billy. Right. Right. Identity. For sure. You know, Billy, for sure. If, I were you, if I were your agent, Billy, I'd be asking for a cut of this podcast that you're on right yeah. now. <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, now I think about it, I should be getting some of this, something out of this, right? <laughs> yes, so. for sure. Yeah, well, you have, you have your people call my people, and okay. we'll, we'll work it out. But I, my last trait, my last question, uh, Sixers-wise, is, uh, or just in general, is, um, like, so do you think they are the best team in the East? How do you think this works? They've got two centers that they're going to start. Um, you know, how do you feel like this team projects this year? Yeah, I, I think they're definitely, it's, it's one-two. You know, one-A, one-B, and Milwaukee. Um, and unfortunately, I think it always. I think if they can stay healthy, and I say they, I think if Joel can stay healthy, um, and you know, and I think that both man, whether they're on the call, I, I think they do need to, you know, monitor on the season and have them ready for the playoffs because they, you know they're a playoff team, and that's the goal is to be ready for then. Um, but I think if he's healthy and in shape, they can't be. I don't think anybody can beat him in the East. I, I really don't because I think he's. By far, when he's in shape and healthy, the best player in the Eastern Conference. By far, uh, when you have the best player, you tend to tend to win, and that's what you know. Toronto had because Kawhi was the best player last year, but I think by far, uh, the Sixers with Joel healthy. And I think the big thing is people with uh, Ben Simmons and shooting the basketball. It's not so much of Ben having to make those shots. I think Ben's got to understand it. He's got to take those shots because when the ball gets kicked out on rotation, it's swung to him. Everybody's planning on the person, and then that next pass, they go, okay, this guy's going to shoot it. They get the rebound. When he doesn't shoot it, it the offense has to reset and the shot clock winds down. That's when you get a bad shot. So it's not as much as shooting threes, whatever. It's just be in a position, take the shot, and now everybody can be in a position to rebound. So to me, I don't care if he shoots 25% from three or from the fifth. It just takes a shot because it gives everybody the natural position of rebounding and continue the possession going. So, so you think healthy Joel Embiid is obviously better than Giannis? 
Yes, I do. I, do. I, I, I think if he's healthy in shape, yes, he's better. I love it. That's a great way to end. I, I can't. I honestly can't think of a higher note to leave on. Um, I, I appreciate all of your time, especially around your Comcast appointment. Um, <laughs> and you let you let us ask. We asked every question we wanted to ask, even uh, about future considerations. So, um, so I appreciate it, man. Thank you, man. Anytime, guys. Appreciate right. it. Thanks, Billy. All right. Thank you. Bye. There we go. Billy King. Wow. He answered everything. He did. I, Prokhorov is exactly the caricature of someone you'd expect. I mean, sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, this this thing about him is he's not really like this. But the fact that the only time they met was when he fired him is so funny and so fucked it's, up. It's crazy because the, the the what you think of, like my my perception of that whole thing was that Prokhorov was the one directing them to win now. Like, I'm going to spend all this. I'm going to do all this. The fact that that could happen without, like, meeting with him is fucking crazy. Wild. Yeah, and I had no idea that Billy King, his last trade, was to get Ricky Yeah, Sanchez. that was the one I was surprising you with. Pretty good. Unbelievable. Great pull by you. Um, um, the, I, I also want to just note, like, Russia invading Ukraine as, like, a, as like the flaw. <laughs> it's, it's so weird, like, geopolitical stuff happening. Like, obviously, the Turkish coup is why Dario came over at the time he did. Just really <laughs> odd Eastern European stuff. Yeah, the the uh, I think it's fair to say that like it's just another layer of fucking craziness in like uh, you know Billy King is now Sixers adjacent. So the fact that um, that Russia invading the Ukraine is why <laughs> that's so crazy. Can you imagine finding that out as GM that your entire plan is now thwarted because of something which seems so far away yeah not just in in not just in terms of like physically far away but you know it doesn't it doesn't seem like it one should affect the other very bizarre Unbelievable. look it's a connected world spike and sometimes very sometimes world. uh a coup in turkey starts <laughs> starts a whole thing uh well we thank billy king that was great thanks to, uh to billy king for coming on and uh, that was a long podcast that he was on with us the the off season ricky just keeps um keeps rolling on so we're going to start our we're going to start you know talking to people um who uh who write about and and talk about other teams in the east as we start to ramp up toward uh toward camp and and the preseason all that maybe we'll we'll mix in one other stupid uh off season interview but it's been a good off season so far i think yeah very off season the the uh Again, Live Ricky 4 cashed out with Mike Scott and the Process Hall of Fame uh, inductions is September 27th, Franklin Music Hall. Pre-sale is Wednesday. Sign up for the newsletter if you'd like to um, get in on that pre-sale. Write to rickysanchez.com slash newsletter, and otherwise tickets go on sale Friday. That's all I got. You got anything else? Nope. Are you down with TTP? Yes. You know. Lickface. Say the name. 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 Say the name.
Sam Sass forever.